11th episode of the 39A podcast. This is Devina Malvia from Project 39A. In today's episode, we are in conversation with Shreya Rastogi, Head of Forensics and Litigation at Project 39A, and Devina Sikdar, a forensic scientist with specialization in forensic biology who is part of the forensics research team. Thank you both for joining us today. The topic of today's conversation is understanding forensic DNA profiling in India. The DNA Technology Regulation Bill of 2019 was listed for consideration in the monsoon session of the Parliament. However, it has not been discussed in this session. This bill has received significant attention in the last few months, with serious concerns being raised from the aspect of privacy and civil liberties. Though this bill has been under scrutiny in recent months, it has had a tumultuous history. A draft of the bill was formulated by the Department of Biotechnology in 2005. Since then, the bill has been subject to various changes by the Ministry of Law and Justice, by the Department of Technology, the Directorate of Forensic Science Services, Ministry of Home Affairs, an expert committee, the Law Commission of India. The bill was introduced and passed in Lok Sabha in January 2019. Due to dissolution of the Lok Sabha, the bill soon lapsed. In October 2019, the bill was referred to the Parliamentary Standing Committee and the committee submitted its report in February of 2021. Shriya Rastogi here has deposed as an expert witness before the Parliamentary Standing Committee. Before we begin the discussion on the bill, it is important for us to examine the process and science behind forensic DNA profiling, the myths surrounding it, and the application of forensic DNA profiling in the Indian legal system. Devina, if I can first come to you, can you explain to our audience the process of forensic DNA profiling? What are the various steps involved in it? And what information can this examination give to us? Right. So I think before we get into the explanation of forensic DNA profiling, it's important for us to understand what DNA is. Now, DNA is a molecule that's found in our body and contains our genetic information. We inherit this from both our biological parents and it is found in every cell of our body inside the nucleus. What is interesting to know is that 99.9% of the DNA is exactly the same across all humans and only 0.1% is unique to every individual. Forensic DNA profiling uh, is a process wherein we examine certain portions or certain locations of the DNA molecule and not the whole DNA molecule. Basically what happened was that research showed that DNA had greater distinguishing power than say uh, traditional evidence like fingerprints. So highly variable sections of the DNA uh, were picked and then examined uh, to use it as a distinguishing factor between two individuals. As I've mentioned, uh, 99%, 99.9% of DNA is same between individuals. Therefore, uh, as a technique, forensic DNA profiling, because it exp- examines certain sections, it's probabilistic in nature because there's a possibility that certain sections 
may be common. For example, Shreya and I can have certain sections that are being examined which are highly common. And therefore, as a examination process, as a technique, forensic DNA profiling is probabilistic in nature and cannot uniquely identify any individual. Uh, that's very interesting, uh, this point about forensic DNA profiling being probabilistic in nature. Because I think uh, popular culture, you know, in movies and uh, crime thrillers would have us believe that uh, DNA reports are expressed in terms of a 100% match. And that is what DNA profiling is in the imagination of most people. That there is a report which says that there is a 100% match and the case gets solved. So then I'm assuming that these results are actually scientifically inaccurate. There is, There cannot be a 100% match. Absolutely. As I just said, forensic DNA results are probabilistic in nature. And actually, the results can only determine the rarity of a profile in a given population. Scientists usually have to calculate statistically uh, the probability or the likelihood of a DNA profile based on population genetics information. Uh, so all forensic DNA profiling results should definitely be reported with such statistical evaluation. And reporting simply a match is not only scientifically inaccurate, it is legally as well misleading because uniquely identifying anything through uh, forensic DNA profiling is not possible. Right. Thank you so much for that explanation. I think understanding the science behind this process will also help us in then understanding its use by the criminal justice system. So moving on, Shreya, can you elaborate on the various ways in which legal systems have relied on forensic DNA profiling? And specifically, how has the Indian legal system relied on it? So the Indian legal system has used forensic DNA profiling uh, uh, since the early uh, 1990s. And it has been used in a variety of uh, civil and criminal cases. In terms of the civil applications of uh, uh, DNA profiling, it's uh, uh, primarily used uh, in cases for uh, paternity testing to determine the parentage uh, of a particular individual. And in civil cases, uh, um, forensic DNA profiling is used in a variety of uh, uh, bodily offenses. Uh, so, for instance, for investigating uh, uh, cases of uh, sexual assault, rape, and murder. Uh, what's important to understand is that in, case, in criminal cases, um, the uh, application of uh, uh, forensic DNA profiling can help us in, answer, uh, in answering a variety of questions. So, for instance, if there is a, a deceased person whose uh, uh, death is found to be in suspicious circumstances, uh, or appears to be homicidal in nature, and, uh, and the investigating authorities are, are unable to identify such a deceased person, then they may uh, uh, first and foremost use DNA profiling to um, figure out and find out their identity. Also, um, in cases where uh, uh, there is a, a particular suspect that the police um, have in mind, then uh, the evidence which may be collected uh, from that uh, particular accused or the evidence uh, that is collected from the victim. So be it uh, any kind of uh, um, biological samples, uh, like in cases of sexual assault, uh, the swabs taken from genital organs or oral swabs that are taken from the, uh, from the victim, uh, those may help in identifying uh, the identity of the accused 
in case uh, uh, the queued uh, DNA is found to be uh, deposited in those samples. Uh, similarly, uh, if in case uh, the accused DNA is found on uh, the clothing of the victim or vice versa, even that uh, uh, may be incriminatory in uh, the particular facts and circumstances of such cases. So, so what's important to know is that in and of itself, uh, DNA does not prove the guilt of a person. And all that DNA profiling is able to tell you is the presence of a person's genetic material on another object, right? It does not uh, directly answer the question of guilt. Uh, and therefore, uh, in any case uh, where DNA profiling is being um, submitted as evidence, uh, there must be other uh, corroborating evidence uh, um, towards uh, the determination of guilt. Uh, I, I should also add that DNA profiling uh, and the science of DNA profiling uh, uh, as it's currently being used, it does not uh, help us answer the question of how long the DNA has been um, deposited on, on a particular object uh, and whether that person directly deposited uh, their DNA on that or if the DNA got deposited via uh, transference. So that is to say, if uh, I shake um, uh, Devina's hand and Devina then touches another object, then my DNA could land up on that object through DNA transference. And research has shown that DNA is highly susceptible to transference, which therefore kind of reduces or has an impact on the probative value of DNA in um, criminal cases. Uh, the other applications of DNA profiling include um, identification of uh, unknown deceased persons, uh, like in situations of mass disasters, or uh, uh, identification of missing persons. Thank you for that explanation, Shreya, uh, for helping us understand the various cases in which, the range of cases in which forensic DNA profiling can be used. So given the importance of DNA profiling in the legal system and its various applications, as Shreya has outlined, Devina, can you tell us about how forensic DNA profiling is being regulated in India? Right. Uh, I think before I get into the practice of forensic DNA profiling in India, uh, it is best for me to explain the current structure of government labs uh, functioning within the country. Uh, so bulk of the forensic DNA profiling work is carried out by government forensic science laboratories. Uh, within DNA divisions that function within these government laboratories. Uh, the labs uh, submit results to the court. Criminal casework requires only government forensics um, laboratories to submit reports. For civil cases, uh, private labs can be consulted uh, as well and they can submit the reports to court as well. Forensic DNA profiling, as I mentioned, is carried out within divisions in these laboratories, which are spread over uh, three tiers. So we have central laboratories that come directly under the Ministry of Home Affairs. And each state has their own state labs under which regional labs can also be present. Now, state laboratories, um, they come under their respective states, home or police department. And bulk of the forensic DNA profiling casework is actually being carried out by these state and regional labs. In recent years, the government has put plans in motion to create um, dedicated labs specifically catering to just forensic DNA profiling casework. 
But as of now, there's just one such lab in India, which is the Center for DNA Fingerprinting and Diagnostics that functions under the Department of Biotech. And as of now, that is the only dedicated uh, DNA laboratory uh, functioning in our country. So uh, then within the structure, as you've explained, how are these laboratories being regulated? And are these laboratories using the same standards across the board? And how well do they fare in comparison to the internationally recognized best standards? Right. Uh, To assess how well DNA divisions or for that matter forensic laboratories are being regulated, I think it is important for us to understand quality management and quality assurance. Uh, These are foundational principles that ensure that the laboratories follow the set standards, uh, international standards across all types of lab procedures. And this includes procedures like for collection of evidence, handling of evidence, different types of examinations that can occur across divisions uh, and the different steps uh, followed during these um, examination and analysis of evidence. Uh, Quality assurance, therefore, requires the labs to clearly identify and document these standards. So internationally known best practices and scientific standards are then adapted as per the laboratory's conditions. And these are documents that should be maintained and therefore ensuring that the laboratory themselves are applying this to their casework and that scientific standards are being maintained across all types of casework across uh, different staff, uh, help maintaining the overall reliability and validity of the casework itself. Uh, This is to ensure that a certain scientific technique is applied reliably across all cases and by all staff members. Quality assurance therefore requires laboratories to apply for accreditation a process by which it is evaluated that these standards are being followed across all divisions of the laboratories and the complete procedures are being followed. Unfortunately, only a handful of labs are currently accredited. NABL is the organization in our country which provides accreditation and currently only eight government forensic science laboratories are accredited by NABL. It isn't to say that unaccredited laboratories don't follow quality assurance measures, but from the surveys uh, that have been conducted of the forensic science laboratories, the ground reality is very different. Uh, As part of our fieldwork for our forensic survey, we have observed the forensic laboratories and we have noticed that Poor infrastructure is a major issue in a lot of these laboratories. There are issues about vacancies and a lot of administrative challenges, which overall affect the quality of examination in individual casework. This has been mentioned intermittently by media reports as well. Several high courts across states have taken cognizance of the state of these laboratories. But unfortunately, such administrative challenges require greater policy intervention um, before any change, substantive change can occur. Devina, I think you've highlighted a very important concern of uh, the poor regulation of laboratories and uh, that would certainly have an impact on individual cases. Uh, So Shreya, the concerns which have been outlined by Devina, are these recognized by courts in individual cases which rely on DNA profiling? So, 
Um, just as there are issues that exist uh, within uh, forensic laboratories, we also have uh, issues uh, within the legal system which hinder a proper examination of uh, uh, the forensic uh, reports that are submitted to courts, uh, including uh, um, DNA profiling reports. Um, and these issues uh, particularly arise from the fact that uh, till now we have not, we've been unable to develop clear legal standards which would test um, the scientific validity and reliability of uh, the uh, forensic evidence that is submitted to court. While the issues that uh, Devina has just talked about, about the quality of uh, uh, forensic testing and the lack of uh, um, uh, quality assurance measures uh, within laboratories, uh, I, I fully agree that uh, those are issues that should not only concern uh, us as individuals at a uh, policy level as we talk about regulating the uh, forensic science system in India, but uh, they should also be a matter of concern in the context of individual casework uh, that the court is uh, adjudicating upon. The legal inquiry, like I said, uh, uh, there are uh, limitations to it so far. And currently, uh, our legal inquiry on um, expert scientific evidence is largely guided actually by precedent. Uh, where courts are more concerned with looking at whether a higher court or an earlier court has already relied upon the use of uh, specific uh, a forensic discipline that they are, uh, or a forensic report uh, that they're looking at, uh, whether courts have previously looked at this and relied upon it, or it's also uh, largely guided by the fact that there is common knowledge uh, that uh, specific disciplines are well-established around the world. So, for instance, in many of the DNA cases, you will often find trial courts, high courts, or even Supreme Court, for that matter, uh, talk about the fact that uh, uh, DNA profiling has been uh, established for so many years, that DNA profiling can provide us uh, with 100% uh, accurate and unique results, uh, and that uh, uh, DNA profiling is foolproof. So, these are some of the observations that have actually been made uh, by courts and, and science tells us that uh, how erroneous these observations are. So something that makes, that allows such observations to come into the courtrooms and into our judgment, I believe is the fact that we lack a rigorous uh, uh, legal inquiry on issues of uh, examining expert evidence. And this is something that applies across the board. This applies to the practice of all kinds of uh, forensic disciplines and not particularly to the way in which um, DNA profiling results are uh, scrutinized by courts. Right. So I think the issue then is, uh, no, is one, one is, of course, how the courts understand forensic DNA profiling, but also that uh, because the law and expert evidence is not a uh, properly fleshed out that does lead to deficiencies in uh, the court's examination of forensic evidence in general. Uh, and, and that's not just limited to forensic DNA profiling. So we have discussed uh, the challenges uh, surrounding forensic science disciplines at large, whether it is laboratory regulation or the legal examination of um, forensic evidence. In this context then, how do you view the DNA profiling bill of 2019? Although this is the first instance uh, in India uh, where we have a statutory requirement of accreditation of laboratories, 
I highly doubt uh, the implementation of such a regulatory mechanism. Uh, I think the bill fails to sufficiently consider the current status of the laboratories and uh, the accreditation structure that is presently functioning within the country. Uh, for instance, the bill requires the laboratories to get accredited within 60 days, which I think is highly unlikely, especially considering the current infrastructure of the laboratories. Uh, the bill also envisions a separate accreditation scheme for DNA divisions. And as I've said earlier, DNA divisions largely function within government forensic science laboratories. We do not, as of yet, have dedicated DNA labs. Uh, and I think this scheme that is being proposed in the bill will clash with the current administrative structure that is present. Uh, because you have certain laboratories that fall under the Ministry of Home Affairs or under the state home or the police departments. Uh, aside from this, what the bill fails to consider is that accreditation schemes and quality assurance is something that should be applied to the laboratory as a whole. And it cannot be specifically targeted towards DNA divisions because there are going to be um, laboratory procedures that will supplement the examination that happens within DNA divisions. And therefore, having a specific accreditation scheme for DNA laboratories may be highly problematic. And um, I think in that sense, as much as I appreciate this move towards statutory accreditation, um, I believe it is very likely to fail in its implementation. Uh, if I could just come in here, in addition to what uh, uh, Devina said, another uh, important aspect about uh, obligations for accreditation that the bill introduces, one thing that we should consider is that while the bill is uh, the first attempt at uh, uh, making this a mandatory requirement, interestingly, the bill also does not provide any consequences for non-accreditation, which is to say that if in case a DNA laboratory uh, fails to get accredited uh, uh, within the stipulated period of time, um, uh, what would be the fate of the evidence, the DNA evidence that such a lab has um, uh, created and uh, submitted to court? Uh, what would be its fate uh, within courts? Uh, can such evidence still be admitted uh, by courts as evidence? or uh, can courts no longer rely on it? So the bill uh, does not make any uh, uh, mention of that. Uh, another thing that I'd like to highlight is that uh, uh, the bill has made uh, attempts towards defining the obligations of uh, uh, DNA laboratories. And to the earlier point that uh, Devina was making about uh, the need for quality management in uh, uh, forensic work, I think these obligations uh, can go a long way because they cover a variety of issues from um, from ensuring that uh, uh, validation is conducted to having written analytical protocols. So I think that this change uh, uh, should be welcomed. Uh, however, um, there are some gaps in the way in which these obligations have been defined. And uh, it's, it's uh, unfortunate that the bill has uh, failed to address uh, uh, some of these issues because they would have assisted in the way in which uh, uh, DNA profiling is practiced in India. One of the major issues that uh, exists uh, in the practice of forensic DNA profiling 
is the lack of any kind of statistical analysis. So currently, uh, the forensic laboratories are uh, submitting uh, uh, DNA reports to the courts uh, without an assessment of the rarity of the DNA profiles that they have examined from the evidence samples. And like uh, Devina was explaining to us earlier, uh, forensic DNA profiling is inherently probabilistic in nature. So that is to say that uh, in forensic DNA profiling, we are not profiling the entire uh, DNA strand and we're only looking at a few specific locations in a person's DNA, there is a probability that another unrelated individual could have uh, uh, the same profile. And that is why um, around the world it is understood uh, and it's an int uh, uh, integral part of the practice of DNA profiling that statistical uh, analysis is conducted and that uh, that analysis is used by the fact finder, be it the judge or the jury, in granting any weight to the DNA profile. So the the lack of uh, such kind of analysis by our um, uh, forensic laboratories is a grave, uh, uh, is a matter of grave concern and it raises doubts over the scientific and legal legitimacy of the results that are submitted to courts. So the takeaway from the explanation that both Shreya and Devina have provided is that while the bill has taken certain steps which are important, it does not go all the way and it still has left uh, many gaps. So finally, coming to the second aspect of what the bill seeks to do, which is creation of a national as well as regional DNA database. A lot has been said about it, especially its impact on privacy in the absence of a data protection law. Shreya, in your opinion, is there a need to create a DNA database and what is the purpose that it serves? Right. So uh, it's first important to clarify that the use of DNA profiling is different from databasing of the DNA profiling uh, profiles that are created. Right. Those are two different things. And, and, and we must acknowledge the fact that India has uh, been uh, conducting uh, DNA profiling, forensic DNA profiling uh, for more than two decades now. And uh, we and during this time, we have not had a DNA database. Uh, so therefore, uh, as a system, we can continue to use uh, DNA profiling for the purposes of uh, resolving uh, uh, appropriate civil and criminal disputes. Uh, without uh, a DNA database. But uh, at the same time, it's, it's important that uh, for us to understand what is the use of forensic DNA databases that exist in other jurisdictions. How have they assisted those governments and those uh, the investigating agencies in those jurisdictions in resolving cases? Right? And the biggest narrative that comes forward and in support of having forensic uh, DNA databases is the fact that it can assist in expediting criminal investigations in case of um, repeat offenders or in terms of uh, identifying uh, missing persons. So those have been the two main uh, purposes for which uh, there's been a significant push for uh, uh, forensic uh, DNA databases. But as we get into discussing our own bill, we also must acknowledge what has been the experience of these databases and other jurisdictions, what have been some of the debates on issues of privacy and human rights concerns that have come up in those jurisdictions and what can we learn from those 
uh, as we uh, look to debate uh, the bill um, as it's pending before the parliament. And there we will find that uh, um, from the experiences of other jurisdictions, we can see that uh, uh, there are limitations to using DNA databases as well. Uh, we must uh, um, acknowledge that um, uh, quality management of DNA databases has come up as an uh, issue in other uh, uh, jurisdictions and that just doing a search against uh, uh, the profiles which are there on uh, um, the forensic DNA database uh, can also sometimes uh, uh, box in the uh, scope of investigation. So therefore, we, we must uh, um, consider uh, some of those pitfalls as we go towards uh, building our own DNA database. Another aspect uh, uh, that we should think about is that best practices suggest that uh, any forensic DNA database should be extremely limited and uh, defined in its scope. And uh, that uh, uh, mostly, I mean, the, the it should be limited to storing the profiles of convicted persons as opposed to storing profiles of uh, under trials of suspects in investigations. So that's another thing, uh, another point on which the current bill uh, departs from the best practice. And finally, I, I would say that uh, uh, the way in which the access to uh, forensic DNA databases is uh, monitored and regulated in other jurisdictions we must also look to follow uh, and incorporate some of those practices within the statute uh, before we look to create a DNA database because there are very serious privacy and human rights uh, considerations for any person who might have their DNA profile uh, stored on the database. Uh, so all of these issues must be uh, appropriately discussed and debated before uh, um, the bill becomes a law. Thank you for that explanation and particularly the distinction between uh, DNA profiling and creation of DNA database like you have mentioned. So now I'd just like to ask both of you that what are the issues which you see uh, in the manner in which the bill envisages the creation of the DNA database? So currently uh, the main issue um, that affects both the um, a regulation aspect of the bill as well as the um, the database creation is uh, the way in which DNA profile has been defined uh, under the bill. Now, uh, the current definition is an extremely wide one since it covers um, uh, the analysis, the result of analysis of a DNA sample for establishing human identification in respect of the matters which are listed in the schedule uh, as um, annexed to the bill. Now, um, the words that we must uh, consider here more closely is establishing human identification. That is, uh, those are, that's an extremely wide way of defining DNA profile because it can include within its scope all kinds of applications of uh, DNA profiling uh, and not uh, specifically forensic DNA profiling, uh, which is limited to looking at specific markers that do not give you information about uh, the physical attributes or the medical history of an individual. So, so the way in which it's currently defined, it could include uh, those aspects as well. And because of that wide definition, 
uh, everything else that gets defined in the bill, which is, uh, that is to say uh, the definition of DNA testing or then thereafter DNA laboratory, which is any lab or facility that is doing DNA testing, all of those get affected because of this broad definition of a DNA profile, right? The snowballing effect here is that when we think about the regulatory aspect, this would then mean that all uh, DNA laboratories uh, are covered within the purview of the bill because uh, uh, Section 13, I believe, uh, mandates that every DNA laboratory uh, must be accredited uh, by the DNA leg regulatory board that is envisaged under the bill. And these uh, such DNA laboratories must also then uh, submit the DNA profiles that they generate to the DNA database. Now, the submission of the DNA profiles is not limited in the, uh, in the current draft. It's not limited only to those DNA profiles which will be relevant to the particular uh, indices that are uh, uh, envisaged under the bill. And, and that uh, creates a huge ambiguity because uh, one wonders whether all uh, kinds of DNA profiles that are generated uh, will have to be submitted. So, for instance, a government lab uh, doing uh, DNA profiling in a paternity case, would the laboratory have to submit uh, those profiles as well or not? And who would be uh, taking those uh, decisions? Would it be at the laboratory level or uh, would it be sent to the DNA database and then it would be database uh, in the particular index uh, if in case it's relevant? If it's not indexed, then uh, would the database uh, still uh, retain those DNA profiles? All of these are questions which are up in the air and, and therefore um, they give rise to concerns of uh, ghost indexes being prepared. Uh, where uh, the, uh, the the DNA database might have uh, might store and might collect uh, more uh, profiles than it's uh, apparently supposed to, right? So so these kind of concerns uh, all generate from uh, definition of the DNA profile and also the the width of the schedule that is mentioned in the bill, and that is why um, these are two issues that have to be uh, looked at more closely. Speaking from what Shreya just mentioned right now, one of the other things that we should be concerned about is the fact that the DNA bill currently envisions regional DNA database as well as a national DNA database. Now, as Shreya has mentioned that the scope of the indices is vast because the DNA profile definition isn't really specific as well as how the indices are uh, defined in the bill itself gives rise to the possibility of ghost indices. This is highly sensitive information that we are talking about and the fact that there are going to be multiple ways that this information is going to be stored is definitely a cause for concern. And this problem gets heightened because as of now the bill doesn't envision a quality management system for the DNA databases itself. So as we've just discussed uh, the DNA laboratories have mandatory accreditation requirements, but the DNA database itself uh, doesn't really have any such requirement. And we don't know whether a quality management system is being envisioned or not for DNA databases. Now, for example, if the examination in a DNA division leads to poor results, uh, as I've mentioned that forensic DNA profiling just looks at certain sections of the DNA. And we also know that the evidence that comes in through casework isn't the most pristine. 
So it's very likely that the profiles that are generated aren't uh, of good quality and maybe partial profiles. So having such profiles being generated by laboratories and then eventually being uploaded onto a regional database or on a national database without any oversight can definitely be a problem, especially when we know that there's a chance that these are going to be used for future searches. Uh, and this becomes all the more problematic given what Shreya has discussed in the le- uh, regarding the legal examination of such evidence. Uh, and the fact that there is no statistical evaluation that's been happening currently in our um, laboratories. So poor quality profiles or partial profiles, if they're used and um, uploaded, databased, and then searches run on them, and then a simple match is then reported, it could lead to uh, dire consequences in caseworks. So therefore, it becomes really important for us to understand quality management system of DNA databases and have that in place before any such um, databasing of information happens. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, Devira and Shreya, for having this conversation with us. I think it has been extremely useful to understand uh, and engage with you on all the points that you have covered, uh, right from the science behind DNA profiling to the structure of forensic science laboratories in India, how they are regulated, how forensic evidence is examined by court, what are the limitations of such examination, how that impacts individual cases, and finally, the insights that you have provided to us on the DNA profiling bill. Uh, I think uh, the background and the context uh, which you have provided to us is especially useful when we uh, move on to examine the bill and understand the various concerns it poses. This conversation has been extremely insightful and very informative. And I really hope that it guides future discussions on not just our DNA profiling and the bill, but also forensic science regulation in India. So thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you for having us.